random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior. A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter, what are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of the Marvelists. Hi, this is Annie Nocenti, and I'm a writer of most recently The Seeds and Ruby Falls for Burger Books, Dark Horse. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias. All right, go ahead. Go on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at The Marvelists. Go find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms. Tune in Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, you name it, we're there. And, of course, iTunes, rate, review, subscribe. Also... By the way, I completely just ignored that part. We're individually on social media. I'm at Peter Melnick on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find Eddie on one social media platform, and that is? Uh, that's IG, yes, Instagram. Hello. Hello. Eddie9193. Why are we exchanging pleasantries? I already know you. Oh, yeah. But anyway, you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash... The Marvelists. Support the show, and for the $5 and up tier, you end up getting the Fantastic Voyage, where we cover all... 102 plus annuals as well as other appearances including amazing spider-man number one which by the way i got to hold for the first time yesterday and it's on his facebook page. and twitter well no one no one's allowed on my facebook but oh all right it's personal eddie that's <laughs> yeah. what personal is but mm -hmm. you can also support the show by going to below the slash the marvelists and buy a t-shirt which our lovely model eddie is wearing right now. It's the Dad Joke Immune T-shirt, Eddie model for the audience. I, I am, see? Well, wait a minute. It's audio podcast. It's all up front there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hubba hubba. But before we get into the topics at hand, we would like to introduce our very special guest on the other end of the tin can and string. She is a legendary writer in the realm of comics. She's done work for Marvel. She's done work for DC. She's done work for Image. And most recently, she's done work for Dark Horse Comics through burger books i believe and the book is the seeds yes ladies and gentlemen we are joined with ann nascenti ann good afternoon welcome uh -oh. thank you so much for putting up with that and i thought he was going to do like he did to me at right off the bat and i have to get this out of the way and possibly apologize unless you make i make the same joke that you made a few seconds ago no so unless my god unless i edit this out because he we're texting and it's like okay we got annie and i'm like no you you might call that personally, but I only know her as Anne. In any of the, uh, the comic books <laughs> in Marvel, I know I was such a stickler for him because I'll do that uh, on on occasion. He's the penis in my anus, believe me. And <laughs> so first and foremost, the seeds. I actually just finished reading the book today, and it is the definition of a page turner. It's one of those stories where you're partnered alongside the great David Aha, and the art. First off, first and foremost, is gorgeous, and it complements. The story that, again, is a real page-turner. It's making you wonder, what's next? And for the audience out there, what was the genesis of this book for yourself and David? Well, I usually 
sort of mull things over in my head for a long time about, because you have to live with your idea for years when you're going to write four issues that will turn into a graphic novel. So I kind of wait until I have the proper obsessions in line, maybe I would call it. So I was kind of obsessed with nature and how nature viewed us as we wrecked the planet. So I spent a lot of time literally just on farms and in nature wondering how the animals were viewing us humans humans and our behavior and so I knew I wanted it to have that aspect and I knew I wanted it to have the aspect of journalism because I spent a decade of my life as a journalist and you know so once you have and then the third thing was my own obsession with tech my tech and this sense that I was literally amputated when I couldn't find my phone and I couldn't, my eyeballs would have to adjust from diving into the portal and diving out. And so I think once I had like these three, these three ideas will propel me to be obsessed with something for a couple of years because, you know, it took a couple of years to produce this. Then I, then I was pretty much set on a story. And, you know, I work with Karen uh, Berger, who's amazing, and we... You know, traded ideas back and forth, and I worked on the script with her. And then I worked in an interesting method with David Aha. I would send him a script, and in order to find his own rhythms to tell the story, he because he's the one who has to design the world and live in the flesh of the characters in order to act out all their nuances and gestures and silhouettes and so he would he took the first issue and kind of juggled the scenes and he decided that he wanted to do this five or six chapters in a nine panel grid in the kind of um i guess kind of a sickly green you know to get the sense this is a poisoned world and so once he adapted the story to his way he wanted to tell this story uh then i went back in and the next plots i did to to shape to fit his chapter rhythms and so that was basically how the story uh came about and when i you know slipping through the book when i initially bought it i saw the nine pan the nine panel grid and my immediate reaction was oh they're going for the ditko method i love this and you know it, it's kind of cool to be able to see stuff like that. And you mentioned the colors, the quote-unquote sickly green of it all. Who is the colorist of this? Because they did a phenomenal job with that. David, David did it. David really? did everything. He did the lettering, the coloring, everything. And the, um, the nine panel, I mean, you'd have to interview him to understand exactly why, but from my sense of getting the layouts, and, you know, I rewrote each issue, depending on how we laid it out, is that, he wanted a kind of sense of claustrophobia, and he wanted to be able to play with the rhythms of having that central panel, which is quite different from a six-panel grid, because with the, with the nine-panel grid, you have that central sort of power panel. So you can glance at the page. I mean, some of the pages are so astounding in the way that you can just glance at the page and see how the, all nine panels are interconnected with rhythms and lines and 
Um, and he, he's really controlling where your eye goes and what it sees. So, yeah, so basically he, he did the lettering the, the, and the coloring. And he worked with Richard Brunning, who is the amazing art director from Karen Berger's original Vertigo line of books. And he worked with Richard to design the book. And I think he was actually, he said he was somewhat inspired by the work that Richard had done back in the day on uh, the Vertigo line. So, yeah. Let's make note that it's not a strictly all the way through nine panels also because I see there's a, a lot of different configurations. So you might have three on top and three on the bottom yeah, and one across the middle. I think, I think the, the solid nine panel grid of which you see, you can get too claustrophobic and so it's it's really a matter of like the the rhythms of wanting to give the reader's eyes a breath of a pause of oh look at this big image and you know it's it's the mysterious ways in which he laid out the story and so at some place there's how i wrote the story and how he he laid out and designed the story and that becomes this sort of mind meld of storytelling and I think a lot of the stuff I was going for was cryptic to him and vice versa so it became a kind of a a playful you know passing the baton back and forth kind of a thing like he would add an element and I would riff off that element Uh, most specifically he sent me an image of an astronaut floating in space, and that is why the astronaut literally floated into the story. So it's, it's for the, for, as a writer, you have, like, the story you want to tell, and I couldn't do this on a monthly book because it required a, a lot of rewrites and a lot, a lot of extra time. So on a monthly book, you'd basically blow all your deadlines if you worked this way. But it was a matter of... You know, I write very tight, simple scripts with no more than five or six panels with the whole thing laid out so that if the artist wants to just draw as is, I know it works. But with, with it, you know, with David, because he was juggling things, I had to go back in and rewrite everything and fill in gaps where pieces of the story fell out. And so it was, it was a kind of an experience extraordinary way of working my other burger book ruby falls which came out this year also i did two graphic novels for karen burger's burger books and that was with the incredibly talented flavia biondi who's an italian artist and we it, it was sort of weirdly similar she's in italy david's in spain so most of the collaborations are done via email, and also there's a certain language barrier, and there's a time difference, and so there's a lot of trust involved. Like you're just kind of like reading each other's cryptic, you know, you know, m- visual messages. Like so, I would adapt it also to Flavia's rhythms of the the playful way she wanted the exteriors to be filled with autumnal colors, and the interiors to draw back in. To the more mysterious human behavior of the noir world because it's a um, noir story and Lee Lowridge 
did an amazing coloring and giving each page and spread its own beautiful. He really used the color as a storyteller. I mean, both of these books, you can really see the the storytelling aspect of coloring. I mean, I think with with the seeds, you have a sense of being completely enveloped in a in a in a world that could be our future five yes. minutes from now. And with Flavia, with Flavia working with Lee Lowridge, they use color in a very in a very different, like mood shifting way. The way you'd like use a soundtrack in a film to shift the viewer's mood as you go along. So both of these, and that's Karen Berger. Her her imprint is very much reminding of the days of Vertigo when creators were allowed to be more personal and even takes on superheroes could be strange and not quite on model, as they say these days. And so it was really fun for me, somebody who's only mostly done superheroes and who have been able to do these two books. And I imagine like something like this is very creatively freeing. Am I right? Yeah, it's also scary. I mean, it's, it's, there's something about superheroes. They are your, they have your back. You know, I mean, for my years of writing Daredevil and then, you know, lots of different X-Men stuff, they, the, the actual superhero has your back. They enter the stage and... Everybody says, wow, you know, I know Daredevil. I've read 60 years of his stories, you know. And you have a certain built-in, the work has been done for you by lots of creators before you. And when you have to, from the ground up, do world building and someone enters the stage and you don't have that superior having your back, it's a lot more frightening in some weird way because both Seeds and Ruby Falls are very personal stories. I took a lot of um, a lot of the storylines are right from my life. So, you know, it was a little scarier because you're kind of like, who will care? Who will care that these stories are, you know, more me than Daredevil? And I'm I don't I think with David it was similar. He has this, you know, career with People loving his work on with Matt Fraction on Hawkeye, and but Hawkeye also he he enters the room and you know who he is. So I think it was a little scary for both of us, and it still is. Like, does anyone like our weird little baby? You know. <laughs> and you mentioned Matt Fraction, the collaborator with the current Daredevil writer Chip Zdarsky, and Chip. Oh yeah, I love him. <laughs> He cites your, and he loves, loves, loves your run on Daredevil, and oh, that's sweet. It's very much one of those runs where, you know, you're following like Frank Miller's run, and it's amazing to see that you ended up blazing your own trail with something that is just as iconic and as important as Miller's run, and it's very much you know one of those things where you look at every single person on the Daredevil title. It's very, very, very hard to find a quote-unquote misstep with the character. Like, everything in the almost 60 years now of the character's lifespan, hit after hit. Well, I think that's that's actually somewhat a credit to the actual character of Daredevil because, you know, he's a disabled character. He's blind. And, you know, it's sort of like people kind of forget that because he has these five senses that give him 
an ability to move through the world with such prowess and confidence, but he's blind. And I think that there's some something very touching and profound about that dynamic. And then you layer on top of it something that many people have encountered in their lives, like frustration with the court system, inability to get justice for something, and the urge to anger, which he goes right into the streets, and his, you know, Catholic devil suit thing, his, you know, strange love of crazy women. You know, I mean, there's so much packed into that character, probably more than any character I've ever worked on. You can riff on his inherent contradictions for years and years and years. And, I mean, I think that it, a lot of it has to do with, um, with he himself. He's inspiring. He ins- it's, it's Daredevil and Matt Murdock that inspired John Romita Jr. and I to create Typhoid Mary because we wanted him to have a character that could go after all those different aspects of his persona. So, you know, it, it's part the character, it's part you look back, because when you're doing a icon character, you, you look at the work that preceded you in order to respect what's been done before. And so, you know, you're given a... I mean, Daredevil is like a gift, you know, to be able to write that character. So that gets back to you know, why the seeds is so terrifying because it's a little bit more like this is my own brain turned inside out on the page. And for David, it's, you know, here are my obsessions with the nine-panel grid and the, the green and his rhythms of storytelling. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a little bit scarier and it's also a lot of fun. And, you know, myself, I'm an aspiring comic writer, and one of the things about breaking into the field, you know, I feel is being able to have a sense of tough skin because, you know, it's not always going to be uh, perfection. You know, everyone's going to, you know, like praise and everything. I remember years ago when you were at DC, you know, a lot of fanboys would be just show a lot of vitriol. And, you know, how did you overcome that negativity and just keep pushing yourself forward and, you know ignoring you know negativity well because i mean i don't even i don't even i'm not even aware that there was that much i mean thank you kindly for pointing that out but for the most part i I, you're not really aware if fanboys get mad at you because how would i know i'm not that much on social media and the other thing is you go to conventions and you know i had some uh, I think it was, I forget which convention I went to, and I was completely shocked to see the long line of women with cat, my Catwoman issues. And just, so, I mean, I responded to the fact that there were a lot of young female readers that loved my run on Catwoman. Is of course, made me very happy because more women were coming back into the, into the industry. So... You know, it all works. You're, you're off, the stories you tell, you'll find your readers. Catwoman found a lot of female readers, helped female readers come into the, I mean, I loved working with um, Rafa Sandoval and creating like Gotham Underground and doing all those stories. And it was just, it hit a chord 
maybe it didn't hit a chord with, as you call them, fanboys, <laughs> but it hit a chord with females. So it's, it's you have to you have to know that what you're writing about because there's a billion different personalities out there. You have to know that what you're writing about is going to find its audience. And if it's, if it's audience is not fanboys, that's fine. That's you a- know, it's, it sort of means you're speaking to somebody else, which is what the industry needs more of. That's a fantastic way to look at that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of, I'm, not on, I'm not online enough to know if people don't like my work. That, and it's also that doesn't really interest me because I'm not speaking to them. So I think I would say to young writers out there, tell the story you want to tell. Be as honest as you can. And don't, just don't even look at or especially don't care about what people that don't like your work have to say. Turn to the ones that do like your work. Because the history of literature and cinema and the arts is all about that. Nobody likes, you know, punk rock had its haters, heavy metal had its haters, mm-hmm. you know. Every period of music had its haters, but you just make it because it comes out of you, and you have to not care. Abstract expressionism was roundly like everyone hated it, you know? So don't worry about that stuff. Just tell your story. And on, you know, my end, I recently uh, guest hosted on a podcast, and we're talking about, you know, things that are misunderstood for their time, but yet, you know, years and years down the line— they might find that immediate audience, you know? And it's not always going to be instantaneous. It's a good thing to think of, you know? Yeah, and I also think that there's a lot of female writers, you know, getting a lot of grief. And, you know, but I personally love the the women comic writers that have come after me, like Kelly Sue DeConnick and, and G. Willow Wilson and, you know, Santa Amanat. I mean, there's... So many amazing females, you know, Alison Bechdel, and I'm probably saying her name wrong. They, they speak to me, and it's, and so they should just keep writing, even if they're getting grief from canon fans. I guess that's mostly what it's coming from, that kind of like, you know, how dare you change the gender or the color or the attitude of this character because it's different from what I knew before, but... You know, I think that you'll be a lot happier in life if you just be a little more open-minded and just say and just listen to those voices. Well, and with respect to comic writing, were there any that uh, were around when you were kind of getting into it that you took inspiration from and took a lead from? I mean, I loved um, Marie Severin. She was, I guess, the female creator that I was the most inspired by and Louise Simonson for sure. She taught me a lot about, you know, working especially as an editor with Chris Claremont and the X-Men. So I would say Marie Severin and I got to write a story with her, which was maybe when my life peaked was writing a story with Marie Severin. Um, And uh, again, even though that was a toxic Avenger story that no one read and no one bought, it is, still one of the highlights of my life so you have to that should tell you everything you need to know about what goes on in my head you know my, well, one of my I, favorite I, collaborations no one's ever even heard of you reminded me too because <laughs> i remember your reaction when i brought you that toxic avenger comic book design 
Oh, you did? I didn't know that. that well, you get hundreds upon hundreds of, of requests, so I can understand that that's not a problem. Yeah. With respect, now going back to the seeds, yes, it's uh, let let's not have any doubts. It is a dark story. It's it's kind of shaded that way because you're just utilizing really the black, the white, and the sickly green, like you said. Although a little lighter on the cover, which reminded me of pea soup when you said sickly green. But <laughs> it's... Well, I, I shouldn't have used the word sickly because that's kind of derogatory. But I think it's more like the poisonous air, the toxic world. The yeah, um, you know, I mean that's it, it's. It's a you want people to feel something in their gut, and you know the gut feeling is. I mean, you could have done that book in all red or in all blue. Each color has different emotional resonance, and green is the color of nature. And green, green gone bad, is the color of toxic nature. There you go. Yeah. So, you- you wouldn't be choosing, uh, you know, Pepto-Bismol pink either, so. Yeah, <laughs> although that would probably have its own resonance, you know. Oh, no question. You know, what? what's even different about it, it's, it seems like it has its own, I don't know, built-in jacket because the inside cover folds, and it's got a textured cover as well. Maybe I was going to bring that up, actually. Yeah, maybe that's a, a, a kind of a reflection of the um, the uh, multiple presence of what is the, the hexagon, I guess, or the honeycomb kind of thing. You want to elaborate on that a little? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of books out there that use that French flap thing. Maybe more, it's a more European thing than an American thing, and um, it's just, I mean, it's just a, a nice package. I I like the flaps for how they can uh, sort of be used as bookmarkers. <laughs> there you go. You know, so um, but I mean, David Aha is a master at um, finding visual motifs and running with them so you know when i i uh, and i mean there's a moment of hesitancy when you send an artist uh, a story because you know is he going to want to draw bees i had no idea if he'd want to draw bees and if he had said yeah and i don't feel like drawing bees i would have had to say well what about ants you know (laughs) because i wanted that hive mind you know kind of thing going on but he really loved the idea of of drawing bees and and uh, hexagons and he he ran with it so and he made it an element all the way through the story including like in the opening you know he said oh what about a what if the fence also had the hexagon and so he took the camera and let it linger on another place where there's a hexagon so it became like one of our obsessions was Hey, you know, I found the turtle. A turtle, their shells have hexagons, you know, and it's like when that would go right into the comic. So the visual motifs became a kind of fun, creative back and forth with us, you know, when we would find them someplace in nature. And, you know, going back over to the overall design packaging of the book, you know, with the, the textured cover and whatnot. Originally, when, you know, we had scheduled this interview, I was going to get myself a copy of this book and do it digitally. And I decided against that. I ended up getting myself a physical copy. And right off the bat, as I grabbed the book, the texture was the very first thing I noticed. And it, you know, it sets itself apart from everything else that's going around, you know, in terms of other books that might be on the shelf. And I just got to say, that's, it's such a neat touch, you know, pun mildly intended. Well, that's all, David. I mean, I didn't, uh, you know, 
he's a designer, so it was just he he came up with all that, and he worked with Richard running on the texture and the paper and the percentage of color saturation. He worked on all that with, and it, you know, so it's a complete. He wanted it to feel like an art art object, and we even have a lot of fun talking about how it smells. I think it smells like a paint box, you know. I just I, smelled you know, the book. It's like got this, and it's just wonderful to be able to hold a book i mean that is was very important to both of us that um the actual object and um you know you have a relationship with a book that you just don't have with a digital version of of you just don't and one thing about this book there's one line in here and you know myself i used to work at a newspaper and one of the lines that really struck me especially you know with the newspaper involvement in the story one man's disaster is another man's entertainment. And that, that line, again, just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. <laughs> That's so funny because that, I remember um, I thought that particular panel was getting a little too crowded. And I wrote um, Karen and David, I'd like to cut that line because, you know, the, the panel will have more breathing room. And they were both like, no, no, don't cut that line. <laughs> so. You read it thanks to them, not me, because they told me to keep it when I wanted to cut it. I mean, it's just you look at when you're all done with a page, you just keep studying it and just think, well, should there be more air here? Should, what can I cut? What can I trim? So that's what the last, you know, the last draft is when I trim um, a lot of stuff just so that the the page looks well balanced. And that was one line I wanted to cut, and they they told me to leave it. <laughs> and it's funny because, like, you know, uh, in modern comic writing, a lot of the time, the word count per bubbles tends to be something that's, you know, even a hot-button issue in a way. What is, like, the number of uh, words that is your max per balloon? Well, for um, young, aspiring writers out there, I pretty much stick to the, the plot and script. I write full script. If that goes over one page... I know I'm in trouble, and that's the plot and the script. So a 22-page comic should have exactly 22 pages. and Because I know that once it's drawn and I take the descriptions out, you'll end up with about a half page of dialogue, and that's kind of the perfect feeling that I want for a page. And, you know, sometimes then you'll, you'll make sure there are silent pages and silent panels, uh, it's it's about giving it's about finding some kind of inner rhythm of when people need a pause and you know a lot of that is David too because I wrote four to five panel pages and he you know he broke it down into the nine panel grid, grid and then he shifted the script around to fit what he thought each you know balloon should be placed and then I'd go in and look at it and sometimes adjust it further, but he, you know, he was pretty perfect at that, at, at where he placed everything. And it's kind of interesting how in the aftermath, or the parts where both you and David wrote something at the very end, and it's about, so people know, about 125 pages. Again, it is on the dark side, so to speak, but there is a, a glimmer of hope as well. So, and, and of course, being graphic, so there's a language component in there as well, but it calls for it. So it's, it's that, uh, you know, 
Eddie could don't be like real the, life type stuff. Eddie don't like the f bombs. <laughs> I'm telling you what I'm reading. You well, know, that's life. I mean, yeah. I feel like I because I've also done documentary film, it's and I've been a journalist. I I mean, I tend to try and capture life as it is, uncensored. So, it's that is just a particular. I, I'm not crazy about the f word either because you do want to not have people pause and be offended and taken out of the story but it's not me saying it it's the character and mm-hmm. it's a character tick and it's um and it's real life so to a certain degree you're just swiping life and i i did that a lot in my early daredevil work i just did a kind of a swipe the streets of hell's kitchen and put it in the daredevil comic with of course no f-bombs back then i don't even think we could say baby bombs like shit, you know? Mm-hmm. So we weren't allowed to say any of that back then. So, you know, which is fine, too, because then you just have to, you have to, it, it's a cheat to a certain degree to pepper language with swear words. But I hadn't realized, though, until I picked it up that Peter told me about it, and here we are, like, two days before we're talking to him, like, okay, here's a book to read before we talk to him. But uh, it's, a, it's a thing where it was started, kind of came about, it took quite a while to get to the light of day, so to speak, now, but it's it's just happens to be somewhat concurrent with some things that are happening in in uh, daily life nowadays that, or within the last year. So, you know, kudos to that. Uh, the world's aligning the right way and so on. Well, I mean, I don't know if the world is aligning the right way because it is a dark vision, so I would have been happier if it didn't align, but... Yeah, yeah more... we had a lot of discussions about, like, oh, my God, it's taken us four years to get this thing out. Is is the story dated? Is it dated? Is it, like, you know, having less resonance now that the war, you know. But in the end, we feel like, eh, it is what it is. I mean, it is what it is. We started it when Obama was president, you know. We started it pre-fake news, pre-rise of Trump, you know, and pre-pandemic. And it came out after the pandemic, so it's it's been a strange lesson in sci-fi that could take place tomorrow. Is that you have to understand that tomorrow is going to shift under your feet mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> so now, before we wrap this episode up, one thing that I had discussed with you prior when we were trying to set this up a little while ago, you had mentioned that you were doing th- some things in the uh, pre-lost year of 2020. There was an exhibit involving Marvel, and you were involved with that. Could you uh, tell oh, the audience about yeah. it? So the, so the um, I spent the last four years or so doing working in museums, and the um, the. We did a street art museum. I worked for SC Exhibitions, which is a German touring exhibition company. And we did a street art museum in Dresden called Magic City. And then um, they decided to do a Marvel museum. So we worked on that for a couple of years. And it is it premiered in Seattle Mopop Museum. And it's toward the country, including Canada, and it is just open to pretty great reviews in Chicago. So that's been really a blast because it's a deep dive into Marvel history and, wow, going back to the to the first Jewish immigrants that couldn't get work because of anti-Semitism in the Lower East Side, Jack Kirby, and 
the rise of his sensibility is what we open the museum with, but it goes all the way to the present. And it's, it's, it's a spectacular show. And there's a lot of holy grails. There's a lot of, like, you know, major collector artworks of originals. And it, these days, it, it's interesting how many people don't even know that comics were made on paper with pencils and ink rather than Photoshop. And so I think that's a great part of the museum is you can actually look at, you know, scripts and dialogue and the 3Ms and the paint, the way they were colored and drawn and inked and the notes on the side of the, you know, the editorial notes and the notes between the writer and artist. So it's it's a really fun exhibit. And with uh, the exhibit itself, am I, is this the same exhibit that has the gigantic, uh, Ben Grimm sitting on a couch where you can take a photo op with it? Yes, yes. And he has, a, oh yeah, you can sit on the couch with Ben Grimm. You can uh, hold upside down Spider-Man's hand. You can, uh, and one of my favorites is the Doctor Strange Infinity Room where he is, it's a, it's a constant loop of Ditko dimension drawings of Doctor Strange as one of the many dimensions he's hopped around in. And it's Ditko's drawings that go on a loop in a in a mirrored room. So it's multiple parallel futures, and Doctor Strange is standing there, the 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 costume from that movie, and he has to choose which alternate reality to go down. You know, so it it definitely resonates with his origins, going all the way back to Steve Ditko, and the current movie so that ben um ben sanders was our curator and he came up with um the various the ideas for the various exhibits all right so before we go and thank you so much for your time great thank you thank you for reading the seeds oh absolutely and it's great timing that we got to talk to you in the month of march this being women's history month and uh, looks like you're coming up on an anniversary i believe if i got it right from 1982 you'll be coming 40 years in comics. Anything you want to mention as might be uh, working on next without giving away too much? Um, I'm drawing these days, so I'm sort of trying to find my next comic through drawing, even though I won't necessarily be the artist. But I've always done my own thumbnails, so not that I share them. I just do it to kind of understand the story in my head. So right now I'm kind of in the drawing stage of Finding my next story. And when they do become a regular thing again, would we see you again at comic book conventions? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've seen you at least <laughs> missed, a couple I times. I missed that. I was, I was saying that line of uh, women coming up to me with Catwoman issues is the, you know, that, that that's the, the most wonderful thing is to meet the people that are actually reading and loving your stories. This is the so feedback, that, yeah, that you don't usually get and and know about until you're in that element, right? Yeah, but I, I get a lot of DMs and I get a lot of really sweet letters. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of aware of who reads my stories. Well, we are glad that we did get to meet you on a couple of occasions, East Coast Comic Con, if not uh, any others, and uh, we do miss seeing you. Oh yeah, East Coast Comic Con. That's my favorite Comic Con. We. Act- <laughs> I love. I hope that Cliff and Cliff comes back again. 
We uh, on my old podcast back in the day, we used to do a uh, Saturday night uh, late night podcast in the uh, lobby of the hotel, and I remember I got to interview you during it. Oh. And this was when, like, I was in the beginning of my podcasting uh, phase, and you know, into oh, the okay. comics in general. And I remember, I nice. oh, what? I hope I was nice. You were delightful, but it was just amazing <laughs> for one awkward moment where I asked you a question and I wasn't sure about it, and you just look at me and go you don't know who I am, do you? <laughs> and I was laughing to myself because I'm like, oh. I am preparing myself for this interview more so than I ever have before. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is normal. It's all normal. You know, it's sort of, uh, I don't know, The, you know, we live in an age when there are so many, you know, relationships that we have out in public and online. And, you know, it's, it's, it's totally understandable to forget who a, who a human is, you know? So, um, yeah, but I hope Cliff comes back. So do con. I. We were uh, we were right. supposed to have panels and everything set for that year, and such is life. I, w- I wonder what happened last year, you know? I think there was something on the news about it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I know that I was, I, because Ruby Falls had just come out, I was supposed to be, and so I was supposed to be in Italy starting my book tour of, with, with Ruby Falls, the graphic novel I did after the siege. And um, or while the seeds was on a break, and we were opening our Marvel Museum in Detroit, so I was supposed to go to Detroit and then Italy, and I think like the rest of the universe, we all, you know, had to cancel a lot of plane reservations. Yeah. And, <laughs> so. and we're recording this on March twelfth, uh, and I believe this is going to be we're closer to the one year anniversary of when everything shut down. And yes, yeah, exactly, uh... yeah. <laughs> But and thank you so much for your time. Get outside and enjoy that beautiful day. Absolutely. And before we go, how can people get a hold of you on the worldwide interwebs? Well, I'm not online that much, but I am. I do. My name Annie Nocenti on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. But I'm not. I'm not that active on uh, social media. But that's where you can find me. Very cool. And Nicente, okay. thank you again. We we really much appreciate it. I think a long time ago I may have tried to Facebook friend you, so I'll, I'll be out there. I don't know. I'm sorry. Let's I just didn't... for the marvelists. I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Anne Nicente. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. <laughs>